So have you ever heard of Shamgar? I'm getting a lot of blank stares. Is that, you doing an infomercial today, Josh? Like, like ShamWow? It's not a product that goes with your ShamWow. He's a guy in the Bible. Have you heard of him? Probably not. And it's okay if you haven't. There's not a whole, whole lot about him. But hopefully by the end of today, you'll have heard of him. And uh, we're going to look at his life, the short description we have of it. Uh, but before we do, let me pray. And uh, uh, after we finish praying, go ahead and open up to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Let me pray. Father, thank you again for Jesus and thank you for your grace to us through him. Um, Lord, thanks for the opportunity the last few few weeks and the last couple months to, um, to study the ways that you've shaped us, the ways you've designed us, that those of us who are Christians, you've given spiritual gifts to us that we could use them for ministry to serve you, for your glory, others' good, and our joy. Thank you for giving us different passions and hearts for uh, for service and things we're passionate about and areas where we want to see uh, the gospel brought to people and impact their lives. Thank you for the abilities that you've given us, each of us with unique talents and, and uh, physical, natural abilities. Thank you for our personalities, for the ways that we're all different in the way that we go about life and interact with one another, that we're not just all cookie cutter the same. And thank you too, Father, uh, for our experiences. Uh, both the good ones and the painful ones and how you use all of them uh, in our life to shape us. And that as we yield those experiences to you, you use them um, for your good, others, your, your glory, others good and our joy. Help us be moldable that you would, that, that we would allow you to, to take our shape and now use it to serve in ministry. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, uh, as I teach this morning, uh, that you'd work in such a way that you'd stir our hearts um, to no longer be content sitting on the sideline, but to be uh, excited to serve and to do what we can. I pray too against the enemy as servants of their works and effects. He would love nothing more than to lie to us and tell us that all this is a waste of time, that, uh, uh, that we're not good enough to serve or not able to serve or, or whatever other lies he would tell us. But instead, I pray, Holy Spirit, you, you would teach us truth. And encourage us and spur us on. We look forward to a good morning and I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I apologize for my voice this morning. I'm not sure what happened. This is how I'd wake up on youth retreats sometimes and then we'd have, I think I've said this before, haven't I? Fun stuff to hear Josh say in the morning with his deep voice. It's, it's, it's come up a few octaves since this morning too, but you know, things like jazzercise, just really low and... Judges, let's turn to Judges. Turn to chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Are you familiar with this story? Are you familiar with the reference that's made here to Joshua? How about we, we go back even a little further? And it says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel, where'd the people of Israel come from? Do you know? It started a few hundred, four, five, six hundred years before this with a man named Abraham. And God makes a covenant with Abraham and he promises to be his God and that his offspring would be his people. And it would be an unending covenant that God, and when God makes a promise, when God makes a covenant, he keeps his promises, right? I don't know of any promise God has ever not kept. And that's a promise he made to Abraham that, that his people that his offspring would be his people. 
So after Abraham, Abraham, uh, he struggles for a while to have a son, uh, to have children. His wife does. And then you can read all about Abraham in the book of Genesis. And finally, uh, she gives birth to a son by the name of Isaac, Abraham's one and only son. And uh, through Sarah. And, and God calls Abraham. He tells Abraham, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your one and only son. And I want you uh, to carry him up to the top of the hill and sacrifice him on a pile of wood. And Abraham obeys. And he takes his son Isaac. And Isaac, much like Jesus, carries his own wood to the place where he would be sacrificed. And he's on the altar. He's tied up. Uh, Abraham's ready to, to kill him. And what happens? God provides a ram in the thicket to take his place. And he says, whoa, stop. I just wanted to see if you'd really obey me. In a sense, is what was happening. He's testing him. And instead of killing Isaac, the, the, lamb is sacri- or the ram is sacrificed in his place. And Abraham and Isaac come down. Isaac eventually gets married. And uh, first, uh, well, he ends up with a couple women. With two sisters, Leah and Rachel. Because the one that he first wanted um, was kept from him. Isaac has, or no, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead to Jacob. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob is the one who I was just telling you had had two wives, Rachel and Leah. And Jacob has 12 sons and one daughter. And those 12 sons eventually make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And these 12 tribes, eventually they end up in Egypt And uh, long story short, a a guy named Moses, after a couple hundred years in Egypt, leads them out into the wilderness to take them up to the promised land that God had promised as part of his promise to Abraham. Not only that his offspring would be his people, but that they would inherit this land. And so they're on their way there. Moses leads them. The people sin. They're kept out of the land for a while. After Moses is a guy named Joshua who leads them into the land to conquest the land. Well, after Joshua... The book of Joshua comes the book of Judges. And what we're reading here is after Joshua, we see it shortly right after this, that Joshua dies. This is in the absence of a leader of the people of Israel. And it says that after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Curiously, it doesn't, a new leader wasn't appointed Joshua had been appointed to carry on after Moses, but when Joshua died, there's nobody appointed who's left to lead. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. And what you need to know in this first book, first chapter of Judges is that when it refers to Judah, to Simeon, to Benjamin, to these people, it's referring to their tribes who, they were the sons of Jacob and the 12 tribes. And it's referring to each tribe here in, in Judges. So, Who shall go up first first against the Canaanites? The Lord said, Judah, meaning the tribe of Judah, shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. Now at the end of Jacob's life, in the end of Genesis, in uh, chapter 49, I believe, uh, Jacob is giving a blessing over all of his sons. And the one that he gives to Judah is that Judah... All your, other, all your other brothers are going to bow down to you. You're going to rule over them. There'll be a scepter who will, that will come from your line. In other words, your line is going to be the one that rules and reigns. And eventually that would happen. King David would come from the tribe of Judah. And ultimately, Jesus Christ would come from the line of Judah. He's the lion of Judah, right? Well, Judah is prefiguring this then. The tribe of Judah is the first one to go. 
Behold, I've given the land into his hand, the Lord says. Verse 3, and Judah said to Simeon, his brother, to another tribe, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Well, we keep going uh, through Judges, and you won't see it on the screen, but the rest of Judges chapter 1, Judah goes with Simeon, his brother, I'm in, ch- in verse 17, if you're reading along, and defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephtha, Zephath and, and devoted it to destruction, so that the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, This is the key line right here. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And you get to verse 21 and the next tribe, the people of Benjamin, they did not drive out the Jebusites. And it said the Jebusites remained with them in the land. You get to verse 25, the house of Joseph, but they let one man and his family go. And that man went and established a city and he remained in the land. And then... See, God had given them a command, we're going to see here in a second, that when they went into the land, they were to drive out everyone. They were to drive out everyone. Here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mighty than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. Complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them. Give your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. The anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's keeping his promise to Abraham is what's happening here. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. God chose those people because he loved them. Same way he chooses us, simply because he loves us. And he had told them, he said, drive them all out. When you get into the land, drive them out. But we see over and over in Judges chapter 1. I read a few of them to you, but verse 28... When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they didn't drive them out completely. Verse 29, Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites. Zebulun didn't drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali didn't drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country. And they didn't allow them to come down into the plain. They failed to do what God had told them to do. Drive them out so you don't get corrupt by them. And then you come to chapter 2 of Judges. It says in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. When you see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, there's a couple possibilities. One, it's just simply a messenger of God who is giving instruction for him. Or, I tend to lean towards this, and in this case especially, uh, that it's not just an angel of the Lord, but it's a theophany that, 
that it is a pre-incarnate Jesus. He's, he's appearing to them before he had actually become incarnate and was, was born to Mary at Christmas. But he's showing up in the Old Testament. And the same angel of the Lord is the one who led them through the wilderness, led them to this place. The angel of the Lord came and he said to them, I brought you up out of Egypt. I brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, I said. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the people of the Lord spoke, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So, so the angel of the Lord says to them, listen, I'm, I'm not going to drive them out. They're going to be here with you all the time, and they're going to be a thorn in your flesh. And if you pay attention to the news today, it's still happening. There's people who are a thorn in the flesh of Israel. Because they didn't drive them out. You get to verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went to each, of his, each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. But it says in verse 10, there arose another generation after them, after they had all died, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. There got to be a point after they were there, another generation comes up and this generation doesn't know all the things that God had done for them. They don't know the stories of being led through the wilderness and and, and out of Egypt, out of slavery. And they don't know the Lord and they don't serve him. What happened there? We're not really told, but, but ultimately the same thing could happen to us in an instant, couldn't it? If we quit discipling children, we quit discipling students. That the church is one generation away from this happening all the time. All the time. And most of the churches you see that die, they quit doing this. They quit telling the next generation. They quit investing in the next generation. Thank God God's given us a vision where we're, we're doing that and pray that that would continue. Where we continue to invest in younger generations. Well, you get to verse 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, this was a new generation who didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 12, they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Bad plan. Bad plan. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. What we're reading right now is a summary of what's going to happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Judges. God saves the people and then suddenly they turn against him. They forget what he had done for them and they provoke him to anger. And then verse 16, what happens all throughout the book of Judges then is the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So God saves them. He raise up, raises up a judge to save them, to, 
to care for them, to deliver them from their oppression. And you think, yes, we're going to worship the Lord now, right? But look at verse 17. Yet they didn't listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. And whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. The Lord was with the judge, excuse me, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the cycle continued. So the anger of the Lord, verse 20, was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people has transgressed my covenant and I have commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And the beginning of chapter three tells some of the nations that were left in the land and then we get to, chap- to verse 7 of chapter 3, and we start to see this cycle take place. We're given a, head, a heads up. Here's what's coming. They're, they're, they're going to rebel against God. God's going to raise up. God's going to send punishment on them. He's going to send judgment. They're going to be persecuted. He's going to raise up a judge as they cry out for his mercy. That judge is going to deliver them from their persecutors. They're going to live in peace for a little while, but then eventually they're going to turn again on God, and the whole cycle is going to start over. And the whole cycle is going to start over. You ever punish your kids? And it's like, it's like the same thing over and over. You just have some days like that? That's God with his people, Israel here. Over and over. Well, the first judge he raises up is a guy named Othniel. Here's Othniel. He's the first judge. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Here's the cycle. And he sold them into the hand of the Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer. See, they cried out. They're persecuted. They cry out. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who served them. Here's the first judge, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him and he judged Israel. He went out to war and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Say that 10 times fast. Verse 11, so the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Judge one, we got him. People rebel. Uh, God sends punishment and judgment. They cry for his mercy. He sends mercy and a deliverer. He delivers them because there's people and he loves them. And then that deliverer dies after 40 years. And here we are to our second judge, Ehud. Or Ehud, I don't know how you want to say it. Judges chapter three, verse 12. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, another king, the king of Moab against Israel. Because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is likely Jericho or very near Jericho. Jericho just meant the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, for 18 years. 18 years he oppresses them. Then the people of Israel, here it is, they cried out to the Lord. Save us! We can't take it anymore! And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. I just think that's an interesting detail. Makes me think of the princess bride. You know, he's fighting... I know something you do not know. <laughs> I am not left-handed. And he switches over. I, I laugh when I read stuff like that. <laughs> left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So they're sending Ehud to, to Moab with tribute, or to, to Eglon with tribute. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges. I think if it doesn't have two edges, it's probably a knife, isn't it? So he makes a sword with two edges. It's sharp. It's a cubit in length. So it's more like a dagger. Cubit's about 18 inches. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. Hey, if you have, if you have young boys and you want some good Bible stories to read to them, go through Judges. You may have to censor some things, but read through Judges. And let them see the bravery of men who God raised up uh, to lead and deliver his people. But also show them why he had to raise someone up because of people's disobedience. And teach them to be men who, who grow up. Because I'm telling you, the little boys will love some of these stories. This is, this is a key one. Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back to the idols, turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. So that everybody leaves, but Ehud comes back and he goes, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king did silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon arose from his seat. And he who reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it in his belly. So he had the left hand, right? And he just right in his belly. This is kind of gross. The hilt also went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull out the sword of his belly and the dung came out. I'll let you draw your own conclusions, but... Little boys would love this. Then Ehud went out onto the, into the porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. And when he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, oh, surely he's relieving himself from the closet of the cool chamber. Not knowing, uh, according to the text, he evidently already had. Verse 25, and they waited till they were embarrassed, but... When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay the Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. And when he arrived, they sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. 
And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not one man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. We've seen the cycle twice now, right? Then we get to judge number three. And I set all that up for you so you understand a little bit about who this Shamgar guy is. Judge number three is Shamgar. And in verse 31 of chapter three, it says, After him was Shamgar, after Ehud was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. The end. That's the story of Shamgar. That's all we know about him. That's all we know. Sham who? Sham who? Shamgar. He's only mentioned here and one other time. In Judges 5 verse 6. A couple chapters later, another judge, Deborah, and and, and, and Barak, and, and, and they sing a song, and they tell about the people before them, and Shamgar is mentioned, and it says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, of, of Jael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The story of Moses fills 136 chapters in the Bible. The story of Joseph, 21 chapters. The life of Jesus, 89, the first 89 chapters of the New Testament are all about Jesus. Shamgar, he gets mentioned, 45 words. And in Hebrew, it's only 28 words. Yet he's mentioned, why does God put this guy in here? Why is that random story there? Well, from these two verses, we can tell a little bit about Shamgar. First off, we know that he lived in Canaan. That's that's where he lived because he's there and he saved Israel. And he was there and he killed the Philistines who had been invading the people of the sea. The people who lived on the plains who had the iron chariots and they were iron and metal workers. He's in the book of Judges, so we know he lived in Canaan. Canaan just refers to, I use that term to refer to all of Israel and some of the surrounding countries. Some would call it today Palestine uh, and, and refers to the land of Israel and the surrounding areas. God would refer to it as the land of Israel, the promised land. So we know that that's where he is. Number two, we know that he lived in evil and dangerous times. Look at that second verse in, in five, five, chapter five, verse six. In the days of Shamgar, the highways were abandoned And travelers kept to the byways, or your translation might say, they kept to the winding roads. They didn't go on the main roads. It was too dangerous to go on the main roads. He's in Canaan. He lives in a dangerous time. He was a farmer. You're like, how do you know that one, Josh? How do you know he was a farmer? He he used an ox goad. Do you know what an ox goad is? Imagine you have a long eight to 10 foot wooden stick. And on one end, you have a sharp metal point. On the other end, you have another piece of metal that's like a chisel. And what this would have been used for is to goad the oxes as they pulled the plow. 
With the sharp end, he'd, he'd poke at them and they'd keep going, right? He'd prod them on. Uh, Paul, God addresses Paul in, in the book of Acts. You know, why are you pressing against the goads? Why are, you, why are you denying the way I'm prodding you and leading you is what that means. If you ever, it talks about Paul kicking against the goads. And, and an ox goad, it just drove the oxes. But then the other end, the chisel was used to knock the dirt off of the plow when it got stuck and brittle on it. And so that's what an ox goat is. So pretty confident, Shamgar was a farmer. Now some would say, I just want to be honest, we don't know a ton about Shamgar. So there's some scholars who look at Shamgar and it calls him the son of Anath or Anath, however you want to say that. And, and some believe because of that, that he wasn't actually even an Israelite, but he was a Canaanite and that he may have even fought and been a warrior in Pharaoh's army. I'm going to spare you all the details. But in any case, even if he wasn't a warrior, at this point, he's got an ox goat, so he's probably become a farmer. He was either a warrior who became a farmer or farmer who became a warrior. He, used an, he was a farmer. And the other thing we know about him is that he killed 600 Philistines. 600 Look around, there's probably about 250 people in this room right now. Now, double that, add another 100, and come running at me. I'll carry my ox goad. We'll see who wins. It wouldn't take long, would it? The way he killed them was probably not all at once. He probably wasn't like a ninja turtle swinging his stick and getting them right. It was probably more like guerrilla warfare where he just just snuck up on people and, and got one, got another one. Got another. And eventually over time, he kills 600 Philistines. And it says that God used him to deliver Israel. The question is, how in the world did he do it? How in the world did this guy Shamgar kill 600 Philistines? Workers of metal who who would have had better weaponry. Would have likely had armor. Would have been strong. They persecuted God's people. The Philistines were kind of the Al-Qaeda of their day. Coming in and raiding God's people and then going back to their land. Well, there's different speculation about it. And the outline I'm going to share with you this morning, it's been used by a handful of pastors over the last 50, 60 years. And so it's not my own. So I'm just going to be honest with you on that. But I think it's really helpful for us as we wrap up our time studying our shape and how Shamgar killed 600. The first thing, Shamgar started where he was. Shamgar started where he was. He started where he was. Where was he? Well, he's in a land that is full of oppression. Remember, God left these other peoples there to test Israel. He's in a land also that's very dangerous and evil, we already saw. In the the time of Shamgar, nobody took the main roads. They took the back roads. And in fact, there were some full villages that were totally abandoned. Likely because of the terror of groups like the Philistines coming in and, and raiding them. We know that he lived in a land where chaos ruled. There was no king. There was no central government. In fact, everyone, it says later in Judges chapter 17, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Can't imagine that, can you? Sounds a lot like North America. Everyone just doing whatever they want to do. Whatever's right in their own eyes. And chaos rules. 
It was overrun by foreign invaders. It was, if he's a farmer, he's likely, the land of Israel, if you have the Mediterranean Sea here, would have sloped up to the Judean mountains and then down again into the Jordan River Valley. And on this side, over by the sea, on the western side, there would have been fertile land as the clouds came in and dropped their rain and an area called the Shephelah or the, in the coastal plain. But when the, the clouds hit to where the mountains were, they went up and there was no rain on the backside on the east side of the mountains. That was the Judean wilderness, the desert. So it's likely Shamgar then lived as a farmer over in this area. And this was the area that the Philistines were in too, down by the Mediterranean Sea. Put yourself in the place of Shamgar. The other thing, if he's a farmer, he's likely not inside of a walled, fortified city. In fact, the farmers lived around the outside of the city. Outside of the walls or else in small villages, that's where the farms were. Not inside the walls where they're protected. They'd run inside when danger came, but then come back out to farm. Put yourself in in the life of Shamgar. Shamgar starts to see the Philistines come in and oppress God's people. Maybe burn his crops, maybe kill his friends. Shamgar could have done a handful of things. It would have been very easy for him to go, man, I wish I could do something to those Philistines. I just I wish I could take them out. I wish I could save my people. I'm just a farmer though. What can I do? I'm nobody. I've got zero influence. I don't have any wealth. Maybe someday God will put me in a position of power and influence. Maybe someday I'll get there. And when I'm there, I'm taking them down. Did Shamgar do that? Not according to the text. It doesn't tell us that. He started where he was. I think he likely just started taking out one at a time as he could. And just said, you know what? I'm only a farmer. And I can maybe only get one at a time. But I can get that one, and then he's not going to get them. And then I can get that one, and he's not going to get her. And he started where he was. He could have had all kinds of excuses. Plenty. How about you? What's your excuse for not starting where you are? And serving and using your shape? Maybe you go, I'm too young. I'm just too young. I'll start serving when I get in college. I'll start serving when I get a job. I'll start doing ministry when I have a family. I'll start doing, doing ministry when I don't have kids to worry about. I'll start doing, and it just keeps going. And I'm too young, and I'm too young, and maybe someday. I'm too unimportant. Nobody really knows me. I don't really have any influence. I don't make a lot of money. Nobody listens to me. I can't do much. Maybe your excuse is I'm too poor to start where I am. I'm, I'm too poor. Maybe when I have the money and I can afford to do ministry or I can afford to do something, I'll do something for the Lord. Right now, I I just can't swing it. Bottom line, I can't do it. Too poor. Maybe it's not you're too young. Maybe you say I'm too old. I'm too old. It's too late. Or maybe it's I live in a small town. I I can't have much influence in a small town. I'll wait till till I move to the city. And then I'll have some influence and make a difference. Do you want to be used by God? Let me ask, do you want to be used by God? Start where you are. 
Don't wait. Start exactly. Where are you? Who do you work with? Start. Who do you live with? Start. Where do you live? Start. Start where you are. Maybe you can't afford to do certain things. Well, do what you can. Start where you are. Shamgar started where he was. He started where he was. But I don't like where I am. Some might say, I don't like the station of life I'm in right now. I'm just going to wait for things to get better. You know, Acts 17.26 says that, it says this, it says, The Lord made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determines the, the, our lifetime, and he turn, determines the boundaries of our life, where we live, who we have influence with. And he's not caught by surprise in any way whatsoever what your life looks like right now. His desire would be for you to start where you are and serve him where you are. Start where you are. Don't wait. Second thing Shamgar did, in terms of how he did it, is he used what he had. Shamgar just used what he had. He's a farmer, right? You read later, I mean, you get to the book of Samuel and you find out that basically from this time forward, there there were no swords or weaponry in Israel. They actually had to go to the Philistines to make their weaponry for them. There wasn't a blacksmith in all of Israel to make their weaponry. And in fact, it said right before Shamgar, the land had rest for 80 years. It may have been a generation or two since there was any kind of war. What need would there be for a sword? Unless Shamgar had been a warrior, like some speculate, who became a farmer, he he would have had no experience in this, but he would have had maybe experience hunting. And maybe with his, he's like, what do I do? He used what he had. What did he have? I got an ox goad. It's kind of like a spear. I wouldn't want to be poked by it. Right? And he takes his ox goad and he starts going after the Philistines. And one at a time, in my opinion, my guess anyway, we don't know for sure, I'm speculating, but one at a time just goes after him, takes him out, started where he was, looked at what he had, and he said, Here's what I have. What do you have? What do you have? You know that the primary thing you have is your shape. The primary thing you have, I believe, is your shape. You have spiritual gifts. You have a heart or a passion for something that God's given you. You have abilities that he's given you. You have a certain personal style and personality that he's given to you. You have experiences that he's uniquely given to you. Are you willing to take your shape like your like Shamgar did his ox goat and start using it to serve? It would have been easy for Shamgar to go, eh, that's an old ox goat. It's not even sharp anymore. I'm not sure it could even do anything to an ox right now if I was trying to drive an ox. Certainly couldn't attack a Philistine with it. Do you look at your shape and do you go, my shape isn't that great. I'm not even sure I have any spiritual gifts. If you're a Christian, you do. I don't know what I'm excited about or passionate about. I really don't have any abilities. I'm not good at anything. My personality is pretty lame. Don't really have any friends. 
All my experiences are terrible. Wah, wah, wah. Right? Shamgar could have done that. He goes, all I have is an ox go. But what did he do? He took what he had. The reality is that, that that type of a perspective is not true of you. That your shape is given to you by God and he desires to use it and he will use it as you yield it to him. But you've got to just start where you are. You might grow in some of your abilities. You might grow even in the exercise and knowledge of your spiritual gifts. You might, your heart might grow in passion for ministry and for things. But are you willing to use what you have? Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of D.L. Moody? You ever heard of D.L. Moody? If you've never heard of him, let me, let me tell you a little bit about him. D.L. Moody, I'll have a picture for him, of him for you here up on the screen. But he's an incredible example in my opinion, of someone who used this shape for God's glory. And it's continuing to be used by God. Dwight Lyman Moody, he was one of the greatest evangelists in all of American history. If not the greatest by some accounts. And he was one of the weak instruments that God used spectacularly to confound the mighty. Moody had very little education before he became a Christian. He grew up in a small town, Northfield, Massachusetts. This, uh, this picture of him is later. Why don't you go back to that other one? This is him where he's about 17 years old growing up, 17 or 18 years old. He grew up in Northfield, Massachusetts. And uh, when he's 17, he decides, here, let me go back further, I guess. At age four or five, his dad passed away. His dad died of a heart attack at only age 41. Um, leaving his seven children and his wife who was pregnant with twins behind, along with debt and a mortgage. The creditors show up. If you read some of his biographies, the creditors show up on Moody's uh, family's doorstep. And uh, one even comes in uh, while his mother is laying in bed recovering from giving birth to the twins. And they're unbelievably cruel. And they even take the firewood out of the back and take that as part of the repayment to so they had nothing to stay warm and her brother Moody's uncle comes and brings some wood to them and they're able to stay warm and it's incredible all the he started working when he's 10 years old when you read about him though he is like just your typical little boy i mean his personality was fiery he just had a he was just mischievous he was industrious he was just your typical little boy. And he grows up age 10, he starts working and all of his money went back to help the family. And when they would, they were so poor when they would walk to church, it's Moody writes that they would have, they would take their shoes and socks off and walk to church. And when they got inside of the church, they'd put their shoes and socks back on. So they didn't wear them out before they got to church. And then they'd come home at age 13. He leaves and he, he goes to work about, uh, or excuse me, at age 10, he left with his brother to work at a town about 13 miles away. And he was really close to his mom and he went with his brother and it broke his mom's heart. And they show up at this town. And it's not like today you hop in the car and 13 miles is nothing. I mean, this is a, this is a big journey in those days, the middle 1800s. And he writes this, he says, when they arrived in the town, an older man gave him a penny and befriended him. When at last we arrived in town, he remembered, I had hard work to keep back my tears. This experience had a huge impact on him as a young boy. And my brother had to do the best to cheer me. 
Suddenly he pointed to someone and said, there's a man who will give you a penny. He gives one to every new boy that comes to town. He was a feeble, old, white-haired man, and I was so afraid that he would pass me by that I planted myself directly in his path. As he came up to us, my brother spoke to him, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and he said, I've never seen you before. You must be a new boy. He asked me about my home, and then laying his trembling hand upon my head, he told me that although I had no earthly father, my heavenly father loved me. And then he gave me a bright new scent. Dwight concluded, I don't remember what became of that scent, but the old man's blessing has followed me for over 50 years. And to my dying day, I shall feel the kindly pressure of that hand upon my head. What age 17, where you see him now, he takes off and he's ambitious. He wants to make a million dollars and he wants to be rich and provide for his family. He takes off for Boston because he has an uncle there who owns a shoe store figuring I can find work in Boston. And he gets to Boston and his uncle won't hire him. So he lives with another uncle there for a few days or a couple weeks, maybe looking for a job, doesn't find anything, tells him, I'm leaving for New York City. I'm going to walk if I have to. And he says, why don't you go talk to your uncle and see if he'll give you a job? I'm not asking him. He should have offered it to me, he said. Finally, he, he gets his pride under control, goes to him and asks for a job and he gives him a job. And within three months, This picture was taken a few months into his job there when he had some money. Uh, He goes working and he becomes the best salesman his uncle had ever had in the store. And he had a great passion and a love for people. He just drew people to himself. That was his personality. That's who he was. And he developed these abilities to sell and His whole heart in it was to send money back home to his mom because he cared for her because she was poor and what he had gone through growing up. And eventually he becomes, part of the agreement with his uncle for his job is he had to go to church. So he goes to church and uh, at this place he he becomes a Christian. And eventually he decides to move, I'll spare you some more details, but he moves to Chicago where he connected with the Plymouth Congregational Church and he started actively serving. He put his soul and his energy into winning men for Christ. He would go out onto the street and use his abilities as a salesman to get him to come to church. And within a couple weeks of getting there, he rented a pew. And that day, part of the way that church was funded is uh, it came over after, after coming over from England where the state sponsored the churches. You would, you would rent or purchase a pew and then that would be yours for you and your family. And so he rented one and he, he, he brought him in and he filled it. So a couple weeks later, he rented two, three. He got to where he had four pews. And, and then someone turned him on to this small mission Sunday school on the corner of Wells and Chicago Street, which is where Moody Bible Institute is today. My, the dorm I lived in is right on that corner. And, and he goes to this Sunday school, which was kind of fledgling. It was a mission for boys who were on the street. So they had school through the week, so on Sunday they were going to have school too. And he goes there and he starts serving. He says, hey, can I teach? He applies for a job and He said, well, you can if you bring your own students. There were 16 teachers and 12 students. So he showed up the next week with 18 little hoodlums he had wrangled up off the street. Over time, he was known for the way that he just continually used his ability to to round up kids and brought them in and brought them in and brought them in off the street while he was a young man. And when he got to Chicago, he was about 19, maybe 20 years old. 
And, and he, would, he would be teaching, and eventually people started criticizing him. He was using his shape, wasn't he? They started criticizing him because he wasn't very well educated. He had terrible grammar. If you read some of the things that he wrote, you'd just be like, wow. He just had no education because he spent all his childhood working. He was still smart. Well, one of the critics recognized, you know, he spoke very awkwardly in public, and he comes to speak to the children, and they're like, yeah, maybe you should just... Stick to recruiting people and leave the teaching to somebody who's good at it. Another critic praised Moody for his zeal in filling the pews, but said he should just realize his limitations. He makes too many mistakes in grammar to speak in public. You know what Moody replied? Here's what he replied, and here's what I want you to hear. He said, I know I make mistakes, and I lack many things, but I'm doing the best with what I've got. And he paused, and he looked at the man, kind of searchingly, and he looked at him and he said, he said, look here, friend, you you have grammar enough. What are you doing with it to serve the master? (laughs) Touche, right? You know, that's a good question for us. You have talent enough. You have spiritual gifts, you have a heart, you have abilities, you have a personality, you have, you have experiences. People may criticize you that you're not good enough. You may believe that lie yourself, criticize yourself, but what, what are you doing with it? Use what you've got. Shamgar, Moody, like Shamgar, he, he started where he was and he used what he had. And third, Shamgar did what he could. He did what he could. What could he do? He faced 600 to 1 odds. 600 to 1. What in the world could he do? He couldn't take them on all at once. But he did what he could. And I think he started one at a time. One at a time going after them. Well, Moody's another example of this. I skipped over the part where he was in Boston and while he's in Boston, he gets connected with a local church there. And, um, that was part of his deal for getting his job. And while he's there in Boston, before he moved to Chicago, um, the pastor was hard for him to understand. It was very well cultured. Everybody there was pretty affluent, pretty well educated. He felt really out of place yet. He wrote that the people there were incredibly caring. It, It just didn't, didn't make a ton of sense to him. And he started to see the the grace of Jesus. But the pastor was hard for him to understand. And eventually what happens is he gets connected with this Bible class led by a guy by the name of Edward Kimball. And Kimball was just a a man in the church who was using his gifts to serve and to teach. And he he taught a college-age class, and it was mostly filled with Harvard College students. Imagine how Moody fell out of place. He could barely read or write. The first class he shows up to, uh, Kimball says, open up to the book of John. And he starts searching through the first few pages of the Old Testament. He had no clue. They're making fun of him. And Kimball brings his Bible over, opened up to John. Moody gives him his and he goes back and he's teaching him. And long story short, Moody starts growing and understanding. But he, he was so hung up on this idea of having to actually give his will to Jesus Christ. 
He was okay with learning things, and he decided anybody who's well-respected, they've got to have a working knowledge of the Bible, or at least know some things. Remember, he was ambitious to earn a fortune and to be a businessman, and so he at least needed to be cultured and know the Bible. But this whole nonsense of surrendering my life to Jesus, he wrote, later what, what I'll do is, I'm, I'm just going to wait until the end of my life to become a Christian. I mean, if I get uh, filled with consumption or some other disease, I'll have plenty of time on my deathbed to become a Christian. And until that point, I'm just going to enjoy all the pleasures of the world. But you and I know that the longer you sit under the teaching of Scripture and the work of the Holy Spirit, the more he begins to convict your heart. And that began with Moody. To where eventually Moody's working one day in the back of his shop, in the back of the, the shoe store, and Kimball has this thing in his mind where I need to go share the gospel with Moody. And I don't know, maybe I shouldn't go right now. I mean, he's, he's working and he, if I go in there and say something, they're, all of his other coworkers, they're just going to make fun of him and say they're trying to make him into a good boy. And well, that just makes things worse for him. I don't know. And he's walking and he's thinking and he eventually walks right past the shoe store. And when Kimball realized that he had gone past it, he, he just said, all right, I'm just going to go do it. And he made a beeline for the store and he walks right in. He's just like, he's like, I'm going to do what I can. And he walks in and he goes to find Moody. Moody's in the back of the store and he goes back. He's stocking some shoes and he comes up behind him, puts his hand on his shoulder and begins to tell him about the love of Jesus Christ. Just that Jesus loves you so much, Dwight, and he wants you to love him in return. And Moody turned around and looked at him and saw tears in Kimball's eyes. And in the back of that store, D.L. Moody became a Christian and surrendered his life to Jesus. Why? Because this guy, Edward Kimball, just did what he could and went and told him about Jesus. He couldn't save him, but he could tell him. And Moody then throughout his life, as he starts uh, all kinds of schools and evangelistic campaigns and the school that I went to, ultimately Kimball doing what he could is influencing you. Because I went to the school that that Moody founded. I'm a graduate of that. And if that hadn't existed, who knows where I would have ended up. You, You guys got my name from Moody. Because the one guy, 150, almost 200 years ago, did what he could. And then Moody started doing what he could with his limited education. With, he found schools that are enduring that's never charged tuition in 130 years almost, 125 years. Training thousands of men and women for Christian service. What about you? Maybe you agree with me. Yeah, I need to start where I am. Yeah, I need to just use what I have. And my shape is part of that, but I don't know what to do. Well, what can you do? What could you do? Look around. What needs done? Who who could you talk to? Who could you serve? Do you like to pick up rocks? I don't know. I mean, come help pick up rocks this week. What What could you do? See, the truth is, there's kind of an 80-20 rule as it relates to service in the church. And this was a a principle founded by a management thinker, Joseph Warren. Warren, I don't know how to say his name. J-U-R-A-N. And it was named after an Italian economist who speculated and did some statistical analysis that um, 80%... He wrote, of the income in Italy was received by 20% of the population. And he did some research and realized that, that most of the results in any situation are determined by a small number of the causes. And this principle, there, there's evidence for it. We're about that 80-20 ratio. 
And it's curious because when you look at churches, it's often that way too, where 20% of the people do all the work and the other 80% just kind of come. And when you look at the giving, 20% of the people give 80% of the funds. Now, part of that's just because God's given us different amounts, right? But, but it's curious how that works out. And my question to you is, are you willing to be one of the 20%? And are you willing to grow it? Are you willing to be like Shamgar, start where you are, use what you have and do what you can? Paul writes in Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. So we just end with this, three questions. It begs three questions, the story of Shamgar does. Number one, what do you have? What do you have? You've got your shape. And I think the other thing, the only other thing you have other than your shape is your possessions, whether that's your family, your, your house, your wealth, your friends, your job. You've got your shape and you've got your possessions. That's your ox goad. It's a little different than everybody else's. Are you willing to grab it and use it? Second question is, what will you do? What will you do? Look at your shape. What are you passionate about? What are you good at? Look at your possessions. What do I have that I could use to serve? What will you do? Where do you see a need? And then finally, when will you start? Will you start? See, what's curious about doing a a series like this in our church is we don't, we've intentionally last fall, we cut down on a lot of the programming we have during the week in order to get people into small groups and involve you in serving in ministry outside of the walls of our church. So it's going to take some initiative on your own. When will you start? Let me pray. Uh, We'll sing and we'll call to morning. Father, thank you for the example of of a guy who seems so a story that just seems insignificant. Even as we read it, we cruise by it often in the text and go, okay, Shamgar killed 600 Philistines. That's, that's neat. And then we keep moving. We never take time to stop and think and realize that we can conclude some certain things about him from the text. And I don't think it's a stretch to, to conclude some of the things we did this morning and especially not, to look at his example in the ways where he, he started where he was, he used what he had and he did what he could. And that when you were with him in that, what he could do with you was incredible. On his own, killing 600 men and saving his entire nation. Holy Spirit, what is it that you would give us to do? I pray even right now you'd, you'd be stirring the hearts of, of those in our church, showing them their shape, showing them, their, showing them what they have, giving them a vision for what they could do, and then giving them the courage to just simply start where they are. Father, I pray for those who've never trusted you that uh, they would give their life to Jesus Christ. I pray um, anyone in this room or in the the shot of my voice that that would hear that, that they would know if they'd simply repent of their sin, turn to you, they could become a Christian and become part of your family. And I pray they'd come back again next week as well to hear more about the gospel and about that truth. But Father, use us, use our church. We thank you for the discovery of who we are and now give us courage to start doing something with it. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.